Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he who has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. If my memory serves me correctly, that's one psalm that's got a song put to it, I think. The next one is in from 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4. And it has 16 verses in it, and we're reading from verses 6 to 16. And it, it's entitled, The Good Servant of Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have a hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in purity, and in faith. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has give, was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so doing, uh, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. May God bless that reading. <clears throat> Do have your Bible, keep it open to 1 Timothy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the face of death we can have confidence because of what Christ has done as we have sung. We thank you for the sure anchor that he is. And so, Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, as men and women who have put faith in Jesus, that anchored to Christ, you would guide us as to how you would have us sail through life how you would have us to live to you and to honour you. And so, Father, please give us understanding of your word. Please help us to be men and women who live for the glory of the King, the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.
So there is a PowerPoint that's going to, I'll let you know when to click each one, but there should be one to start with. So in, if you have your Bible with you, we see in verse 6 where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so that's essentially what I've titled this morning, the good servant. And the good servant on first, first step is Timothy. Because Timothy is the one who this letter is primarily being written to first, but that then he would put these things into practice, that we would then imitate him or grow from him so they will overflow onto us. But the picture there, if you can't quite see, it's a jug of water, a bowl and a towel, which is often a picture of a servant because the servant would wash the feet. And here Timothy is called to be a good servant. And ultimately we are all called to be good servants because don't we long for the day where the Lord says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But being a servant means we don't get to determine how we serve. The servant serves the way the master calls the servant to serve. And that's what we're going to find in this passage. So there'll be seven things. We'll move through them fairly quickly. Seven things that if Timothy puts into practice will show himself to be a good servant. We've got this wind happening again. And so verse 6 reads, if you want to put these things before the brothers, so that's to Timothy, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. A good servant. As we've already looked through Timothy, there are bad servants and good servants. There are bad pastors and good pastors. And Timothy, in many ways, is like an interim pastor. Paul has been at the church in Ephesus. Things have started to go off track, so Paul's asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus, God willing to get things back on track. Until, and one of the things is that Timothy can help get the leadership and the structure and the things of the church going. And so we need to recognise what is good. We don't just get to do church. Pastors don't get to just do the things that they want to do. They need to serve Jesus. And so the first one that comes up, a good servant will fear God, not men. Because Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers or the church, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. There are many things as we've gone through Timothy, 1 Timothy that we've seen he's probably going to be a little bit afraid to put before the church because it's going to be challenging the church on a few things that they're doing. But if he's to be a faithful servant of Jesus, a minister who's going to honour Jesus, he needs to put them before the church. Otherwise, he will be a bad pastor. Some pastors won't put things before churches because they do fear what the consequences are going to be. Maybe they're afraid to change the culture of a church. These churches can get so used to just how they function. But we've got to be careful because if God's word hasn't been shaping that culture, the culture of the church very readily becomes much like the culture of the world. And so what is right and wrong in the church is determined by how they're thinking rather than what God says. And one of the things that would probably be challenging for Paul or Timothy and for us today might be what we've read in Timothy about how God wants the church to function with regards to being men in the church or women in the church. Because that's different to what the culture would say. Sometimes too, people just don't like change. 
I'm sure we've experienced that. But we've always done it this way. Why do we have to change things? The church in Ephesus was functioning. People were rocking up. People were listening to those who were teaching, even though not all of it was helpful. No doubt some of them thought, Timothy, go away. Or Timothy, why can't you just ignore what Paul's saying and just let us just blend in with us? But if Timothy's to be a faithful servant, he needs to say, we've got to change. Maybe too, sometimes pastors are afraid to confront false teaching. It's just easier to let people teach what they want. We just want everything to look like everything's peaceful and unified. But if Paul is to be faithful, he has to say no to those who are teaching things that shouldn't be taught. He had to stop it. He had to make sure that sound teaching was in the church. And so Timothy isn't just to put some of these things before the church, because often churches will be very happy with some of the things we read in the Bible. But we don't want all the things. We want to pick and choose. And the things that Timothy is to put before the church, essentially, a step is one Timothy. But in the end, it's the faith. It's the whole counsel of God. In churches today, many of them will be happy with other parts of the Bible and probably won't want these things that we've been seeing in 1 Timothy. But a faithful pastor, a person who's shepherding the flock, will put before the, the church the things of God, not just what people want to hear. A pastor who fears God, not men, is able to love the church. You want a pastor who will love the church, not please the church. Second thing, a good servant or pastor of God will teach the Bible because that's where these things come from. His first concern is for the truth, not people being comfortable. Because how often have we been told truths in our lives that make us uncomfortable? But we want the truth because we know the truth is good. The loving thing is to confront people with the truth in a loving way. And so with the things he has here are things that apply to God's church. And God's church is us. So pastors don't get to come along today and say we've got some new things or some new ideas. We hold to the things that have been given to us in God's word. If Paul sent Timothy to us, he would send him with these things. And we've got to hold on to them. The word that comes up in a lot of translation is trained. In verse 6. If he does this, if Timothy is faithful in these things, he will show himself to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. The word trained is the word to be nourished. It shows he's matured, he's built up. If Timothy does what he's being called to do by Jesus, he will show that he's healthy. That he's fed on good food, good spiritual food. And why is it so important that Timothy does this? So that the church feeds on good spiritual food. If Timothy doesn't do it, the church will be malnourished will remain immature, won't be trained up, won't grow up. And so we need these things so that we can be healthy. 
We love our fast food. I catch up with Kev every now and again. We have breakfast at Macca's. I like Macca's. But when we grow up, we realise we shouldn't have Macca's all the time. Why? Because it's not healthy. Mum's right. Bryony's right. We need to eat, I need to eat healthy things so as to be nourished. How quickly churches like the fast food spiritual stuff. The things that just please me, the things that make me comfortable, the things that just fit my tastes. Whereas sometimes we've got to have the broccoli, we've got to have the Brussels sprouts even. Sometimes we've got to have the things that will make us healthy. And just because we don't like them, just because we don't like how they taste, there's no reason not to eat them. Timothy shows himself nourished and healthy as he gives this food to the church. And that's important so that the church will be healthy. If we are avoiding bits of the Bible, we will be malnourished. If we are disobeying parts of the Bible, we'll be malnourished. If we are to grow up and to be healthy, we need these things. Even the ones we don't like at the time. But then when we grow, we come to understand why they are good. Thirdly, a good pastor will pursue a godly life, will pursue godliness. So a good pastor not only is going to be thinking rightly and having truth, but his life will be changed. He will pursue godliness. One man, if you get a chance to read anything by him, is a godly pastor by the name of, he's not alive anymore, Robert Murray McShane. He's a Scotsman, Sam's not here today. But one of the things he said, the greatest gift I can give my people, what might, how might you end that sentence? What's the greatest gift he can give his people? My personal holiness. If I'm a godly man, if I'm being as, as much like Jesus as I can be, if I'm not being worldly and I'm loving Jesus and trying to live a life like Jesus, that is the most wonderful gift, the greatest gift I can give my people. We don't need great showmen. We don't need great orators. We don't need people with great charisma. We need people like Christ. That's what you should pray for those who are pastors. The description we have of Paul. He himself declares he wasn't a great preacher. He just spoke the word plainly. Physically, he, when you read the bits and pieces and piece it together, he wasn't physically impressive. He was a man who was broken physically in many ways after all he's had to endure, being beaten and shipwrecked, etc., etc., etc. Many ways, he was a bit like we read about Jesus. There's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. But he was a man who sought godliness. And in his faithfulness to Jesus, he was a blessing to the church. And so it's important that we're looking in life and doctrine because that's what the Bible constantly goes with. Not one or the other. Both are a must. And so Paul exhorts Timothy to be a man who is godly. Verse 7, have nothing to do with the reverent silly myths Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
So what he's not to do is on about irreverent things. Churches can be on about irreverent things. When they're trying to entertain the people, God is diminished. Churches can be on about silly myths. Things that aren't necessarily bad of themselves, but are unprofitable. People love mucking around with them, listening to them, talking about it, but they're not growing. So Timothy's got to put all that aside, as we need to put those things aside, and train himself for godliness. We're not really exhorted, I would say, to pursue godliness in this way, often. We're told we're holy because of what Jesus has done for us. That is right. Jesus has forgiven us our sins. We have been set apart as the people of God. But God says, be holy for I am holy. Those who, if I've made you holy, be holy. If I see you without sin now in Jesus, what a wonderful gift. Have a life that's rid of sin. Don't go back to where you've come from. True spirituality seeks after God, wants to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And so a pastor needs, Timothy needs, to be a man who shows he believes what he preaches. Because if you believe what you preach, your life changes. If he truly believes the things he's telling us about Jesus, he will put them into practice. If he truly believes what he hopes in, he will live for that. He won't be caught up in worldly things. And godliness is the miracle of grace. It's not as though somehow we can pursue godliness without God's help. We're told in Titus, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. We have this joy as we fight, as we train in our bodies, as we press against wickedness and sin as we strive to be like Jesus we have the joy of knowing that that's the power of God at work in us that's the grace of God at work in us we see here that bodily training is of some value so the first way we can read that is going to the gym going for a run looking after ourselves physically has some value but in the end these bodies are going to perish Will you work out as hard spiritually as you will physically? Knowing that your spiritual workouts have eternal value. But the other way, and there's a common way is read too, is how bodily training, how does this suddenly jump into the text? Because you go from verse 7, have nothing to do with the reverend silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for... Well, godly training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. That word training is discipline. And so a lot of commentators will comment that it's not about going to the gym. As much as those things are true, it's not so much about have you been done your squats today and your sit-ups. But in the context... We've already seen that there are some people who are doing harsh things to their body, thinking somehow it's going to get them closer to God. We saw that last week. Back in verse 3. There are some people who say, I'm going to discipline my body. I'm going to be celibate all my life, so I'm intentionally not going to get married. And the church is even teaching people, you must not get married. And we've seen that's doctrine of demons. That's false. 
We've seen people there too. I'm going to discipline my body. I'm not going to eat certain things. I'm going to abstain from certain foods. We've been told if a church starts teaching, you must abstain from certain foods. That's doctrine of demons. That's not godly. And so in the church, there were these people coming in that were saying, discipline your body. And through that harshness, through that severity of that, somehow God's going to be pleased with you and you'll earn merit with God. And so verse 8 says, for physical discipline. So it's like he is building on the same argument. And it does translate, for physical discipline is of little value. But godliness is of great value. Abstaining from all those foods is not going to get you one iota closer to God. What do we see? John the Baptist came not eating and drinking. Jesus came eating and drinking. John the Baptist wasn't more godly or closer to God than Jesus. In the church, through the centuries, in the Catholic Church, people would beat themselves. Self-flagellation, thinking as I be harsh to myself, it's going to earn me merit with God. Even today in Rome, you can go up these steps, but you go on your knees. And people say it's quite uncomfortable and painful. And at the top, your sins, there's an indulgence, your sins will be cancelled out. But here we see that physical discipline, putting yourselves through these things, is of no value. Because in the end, the only way you can be right with God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. You cannot earn righteousness through your physical disciplines. But having been made righteous, be godly. Because it's valuable in every way. Because it has benefit now and for the age to come. You get to live for the glory of God. You get to live for the kingdom. You get to be God's people now. You get to be salt. You get to be light. You get to be people who bring glory to God. What more do you want in life? To be a man and a woman who live in this world giving glory to God. Me? We're not worthy. We're sinful. We've been rebellious. And yet God would forgive us all our sins and allow us to live life, to pursue godliness that would shine His glory into the world. We were created in God's image, but it's marred. In Christ, that image is being restored, that people can get a picture of what God is like, God's goodness. And how are we to do it? Verse 7, we train ourselves. Verse 10, we toil and strive to be godly. Verse 15, we immerse ourselves in the things of God. Verse 16, we keep a close eye on our lives to be sure we are godly. We work hard at it. Working hard to be like Jesus is a beautiful thing. Working hard to say, I don't want sin in my life is a beautiful thing. And we strive for it. Sadly, I often told today, just relax. Just relax. And yet the biblical exhortation is strive for it, train for it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 26, this is Paul. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beat in the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This striving, this disciplining our bodies unto godliness. The idea of disciplining your body so as not to eat certain things is of no avail, but to discipline my body so I don't use bad language. Discipline my body so I don't say mean things about people. Discipline my body so that I'm giving up myself to love others and serve others. That is of great value. And that is what we're called to do. And that's what it is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because the more we strive unto godliness, the more we work and the more we see the grace, the power of God at work in our lives, the more we're sure we're alive in Jesus. Glory to him for the transformation that he's working. So you're more focused on perfecting your golf swing or on getting a six-pack or thinking that by not eating certain things or putting your body through harsh discipline, somehow God's going to be pleased. Or have you found your rest in Jesus and you're working hard at being kind and loving and patient and having the fruits of the Spirit come forth in your life? A good pastor will show by his life that he is with Jesus. And that life, as you'll see shortly, is then to become an example, to be imitated. Next thing, a good servant or pastor of God will set his hope on the living God our Saviour verses 9 and 10 the saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance for to this we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Saviour of all people especially of those who believe a good pastor will be looking to the day Jesus returns He's not about building a big church now. He's not about, as some of us saw in the prosperity gospel last week, having a church so as to have a plane and a mansion and fancy shoes and $800 sneakers. He's looking for the king to come. He's looking for the king of glory. He's looking to the day where he shall see Jesus face to face. He's got there who is the saviour of all people. Now, that's not telling us that somehow in the end God's going to save everyone. That false teaching is called universalism, universal all. The Bible doesn't teach that in the end all people will be saved. The Bible is clear, there is a heaven and a hell. There will be people in heaven and people in hell for eternity. The Bible is clear, only those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. But what Paul's doing here, we've got to... Understand what the word saviour means, because it doesn't just mean saviour in the sense of salvation. That's obviously a use of the word. The word soter means the one who preserves, the one who delivers, the one who rescues. And so it's what's called an argument going from the lesser to the greater. If God is good in this little thing, how much awesome that's how much wonderful god must be in this big thing and so god we see in that verse who is the savior the preserver of all people we've seen it over the past week that verse played out 
Has God only sent the rain on people who worship him? Has God only preserved the farmers who have been loving Jesus? He hasn't. God has sent the rain on the righteous and the wicked. We read that in Matthew 5. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, on all people. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, all people. God is preserving all people. Everyone everywhere on earth is having a taste of God's goodness. No one is without excuse that God is kind, that God is good. And so here we are seeing that God, if God is good to the unrighteous, even those who don't want him, even those who want to say, go away, God, how much more, this is the greater, how much more to those who believe? How good God must be to you as his children, those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have looked to the cross and had their sins forgiven. If we can see how kind God has been to people who don't love him and God's general kindness, how incredible must his special kindness be to those who trust in him? And so that's where Paul, he lives with that hope. You want a pastor who lives with that hope. I know that I am the Lord's. I know that... Hope is looking forward. On the day I will be saved, I will be saved from the wrath of God. I will be saved from hell. I know that my sins have been forgiven. If he who did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, if Jesus, his son die for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the easy part. If he's done that, and so a pastor doesn't live for now, that sets you free. Sets a pastor free because he knows his hope is not in things now. He's no longer a slave to the world. But that sets us free too, to endure things. People look at Christians and think, you're weird, you're strange. Why do you make those decisions? Why do you live like that? Why? Because we don't have to have it now. We're following Jesus, even being mocked on account of his name because of what we are sure of. We don't want the things that perish. We don't need them because we're so certain that in Christ, how much more is to come. And so God's people endure mockery. Read Hebrews 11. When the world just finds it strange because they are certain of the hope that they have, that God has a great salvation worked for them. And so a pastor must live, not for the world, but live a life that shows his hope, his confidence, his assurance is in what God has done and the deliverance to come. The next thing, a good servant or pastor will be an example. Verse 11, command and teach these things, that no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. That means a pattern. If you make a dress from a pattern, so I remember my mum doing, you cut the pattern out, you get the material, you sit it on, and you've got to follow the lines. We'll use that rolling thing that cuts it. Timothy's to be a pattern. Our lives then come... And we should match his life. So we know we've got to line up 
with what a godly life is. No good having a pastor who's just going to encourage you in worldliness or to say this is how you can live and this pleases God if it's not the way that pleases God. And in what sort of things? Speech. Speech, our tongues are an overflow of the heart. A pastor who's not deceitful, who doesn't lie, who doesn't use words to cut or tear down, but uses words for love, who's gentle, who's kind, who speaks truth. In conduct, how he lives. In love, in faith, in purity. To be an example. We'll see when we get into chapter 5. Paul says to Timothy... If she's not your wife, she's your sister. Your thoughts, your sexual purity, if she's not, there's your wife and everyone else you treat like your sister. There's nothing in between. Timothy is to be an example of purity. And so we see that Paul says, don't focus on his youth. He's saying this to the church. Don't focus on his youth, focus on his godliness. Timothy, if you're being... A youthful idiot, you don't deserve the respect. If you're being ungodly, you don't deserve the respect. But if you are living a life that's an example, age isn't the big issue. Godliness is. Sadly, some people can be and we know and don't grow up. Our culture is encouraging us not to grow up. What are they? I think they're saying now, 50s and new 40s or 40s and new 30s. There's this whole idea of just not having to grow up and take responsibility and mature. And it's really sad when people can sit in the church and not be growing and maturing. Because it doesn't stop. Paul says, I'm not there yet. He's striving. That's the Apostle Paul. And yet how complacent I can be. Jonathan Edwards, a wonderful, when he was a young man of God, says, I want to make sure I'm not the same this time next year. I want to grow. I'm not going to be the same the next time the following year. I want to grow. If we've been in church for 20, 30, 40 years, we need to know that we have grown and we're not just the same year in and year out. To grow in godliness, to know what it is to love God with all my heart or my soul or my mind or my strength. We're not there yet. Paul says he's not there yet. I want to strive for that because that gives God glory. And so Paul, Timothy is to be a pattern. So that in the end he can say, imitate me. As Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So in the end, Christ-likeness flows out into the church. The next one, a good servant, a pastor of God will be growing. And that naturally follows over. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching... Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hand on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. When a pastor comes to the church, it's not as if he's it. Shouldn't be. Church should actually be able to see and I can see how he's growing. I can see that man maturing. I can see how he's becoming more like Jesus. And especially if it's a young fellow coming into a church, to be able to see that growth. Are we growing? Are we growing? And for Timothy, that growth comes 
as he devotes himself to the word, devotes himself day by day to the things of God. You read the Bible and we're reminded constantly of how we forget the things of God. Jesus had to pray every day. Do we pray every day? Paul is telling Timothy, be in the word every day. Are we in the word every day? Because that is how we grow. And if you have gifts, use them. Timothy received this gift so as to serve the church with teaching. Use it. With whatever gifts God has given you, don't sit on them, don't bury them. Use them for the blessing of the church. Practice them. And so we're encouraged to grow. And the last one, a good servant or pastor of God will care for souls. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. One of the scariest things for pastors, if they're really wise, is to know they'll be held accountable for the souls that were placed in their care. To know that what's being taught, to what's being modelled, life and doctrine, how that might impact people for Christ or away from Christ... Because how he lives, what he teaches, Jesus says, will matter. He's not saying that Timothy will save them, but I'll flip, I'll reverse it all and it makes, might be clearer. If Timothy doesn't persist in these things, if he doesn't teach sound doctrine, if he stops preaching the gospel, if he starts living an ungodly life and saying this is the example, he will lead people away from Christ. He won't be presenting them with the words of eternal life. He will not save them. He will be lining them up on the, on the wide road to hell. And he will lose his own soul. But if Timothy sticks to the Bible, if he doesn't get caught up with all the new ideas and the different things, but just these things, these things, these things, and checks his heart with God, make sure he's growing. He isn't a dead tree. He's growing to make sure he's loving Jesus, to make sure what he's about to say comes from the Bible. That will then flow to the church and those who grasp that gospel, those who believe in the message of Jesus will find salvation themselves. The day is coming when we'll all have to come before God's, before the judgment seat of Christ and pastors will have to give an account. And so Timothy's reminding him, one day we will have to give an account. When Paul said back in those verses earlier that Christ is the Saviour, God the Saviour, that is about being saved on the ultimate day. Have you been saved? Without Christ you will perish. If you are still in your sins, just trying to be godly won't attain anything. You need to repent of your sins. You need to look to Jesus. God will wash you clean. And that's the gospel that Timothy needs to keep preaching. And if he's not watching his life, doesn't matter what you teach. How many men have been in ministry and taught faithful things, maybe for year, decades, and one fall undermines their whole ministry. They never recover, they never return, rightly, in many cases. Doesn't matter what you preach, if you're a hypocrite, 
And so Paul, Timothy needs to watch his life and doctrine. He needs to make sure that what he's teaching is leading people to Christ. Have you been led to Christ? And so these things that apply to Timothy as a pastor, but then, as I mentioned, overflow to us. Well, we fear God, not men. If someone is teaching truth and speaking truth, Will we go the way of God's word or men? Will we reject it or embrace it? Will we hold to the Bible? Will we pursue godliness? Because that's all a pastor is meant to be, as an example, in most cases, able to teach. Have we been able to set our hope on the living God who will save us on that day and to live for the kingdom and not be caught up in worldliness, not feel like we're missing out when we're not? Are we living lives as an example? Parents are called to be an example to their children. Those who are older in the church are called to be an example to the younger. It all keeps flowing on. Are we growing? Or have we become stagnant? Do we need to cry out to Jesus and say, help me to grow? Sorry that I've just been complacent. And are we caring for our souls? One man is, when he shares the gospel, he says to people, if I gave you a thousand dollars, would you give me your eye? What do you expect most would say? No. So if I give you a hundred thousand dollars, would you give me your eye? They say no. He then says, I'll give you a million dollars. Would you give me your eye? And what do you think they say? No. He says, why do you treat your soul with no value? Your soul is far more valuable than your eye. Are you caring more for your eyes, for your body, for your hair, for your biceps, than you are for your soul? Because with Christ, with Christ we can have our souls saved. And we'll have eternal life. And that wonderful promise that Christ, God having given us his son, with him... In the end, we will receive all things. Let's pray. Father, please help us to have hearts and ears and eyes that we would just seek after your truth, that we would not be men and women of the flesh, Father, always wanting to be entertained, always wanting things that please us, but, Lord, that we would seek to be nourished, even if that's difficult. Lord, that we might live and desire above all your glory and to know the joy and the privilege of being men and women in this world who shine forth your glory. So, Father, we pray that you would watch over us as a church, that you would keep us in these things, that on the day of your return you might say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.